You know, I applied my relative trust model and trust habits process to many different jobs, roles, and relationships, but somehow I never applied it to my own profession of public speaking. In 2020, I gave a speech at the Meeting Professionals International, or MPI, annual conference. When I prepared for that, I found a few interesting things. One is I found a CNBC article that, based on a survey, found that the sixth most stressful job in America is an event coordinator, an event planner. Two is I conducted my own survey and asked what is the biggest concern for event planners. At the top place, with a significant distance from the second place, was the dependency on other people. Think about the event planner. Planning an event for 5,000 people. And I spoke in events like that, and even bigger. The speaker doesn't show up. Doesn't show up on time. Delivers less than what the 5,000 participants expected. And so the participants, after the keynote, they are now just talking about how the keynote speaker bombed. Do you want to be that event planner? Event planners have to trust the speakers. How can we, professional speakers, help them trust us? That's what I will cover in this episode, right after this. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? So before I, I start telling you what a professional speaker must do, I, I want to cover those two uh, insights that I found when I was preparing for that MPI event. Uh, the first is an article that came from CNBC that listed the top 10 most stressful jobs in America. And I told you that number six was an event coordinator. That's how they call it, or event planner. But I want you to know what the five above it are. You know, number five is actually a broadcaster, which, you know, probably is, is somewhat uh, stressful, especially if you're broadcasting live. Because what I'm doing right now, I'm, I'm kind of broadcasting, but I can edit it. If I say something I didn't want to say, I can edit it. So broadcaster, I'll assume that we're talking about live, and that's naturally, typically the... the, the um, context of a broadcast. But look at the top four. Number one, enlisted military personnel, people who are fighting in wars, being shot at. Two, firefighters. Three, pilots. And, and I can tell you, being a pilot myself, I can tell you that being a pilot is stressful. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why you can die unless you do everything right. Number four, police officer. Number five, broadcaster. Number six, event coordinator. Think about the who else is in the category of the most stressful jobs in America. Being an event planner is very stressful. And obviously, as I was preparing for that uh, session, uh, the, the first thing that I wanted to know is, uh, by the way, I, I asked uh, in, in my survey, I asked another question, and that is, to what degree do you agree with the statement, my job is stressful? My job as an event planner is stressful. 5% strongly disagreed. 3% disagreed. That's 8% who disagreed or, or strongly disagreed. Another 10% were neutral. 38% agreed that their job is stressful. 44% said, said they strongly agreed that their job is stressful. Their job is stressful. Well, obviously, I wanted to understand what is it that makes it stressful. And so I asked the question, how stressful is any of the following aspects of your job as a meeting or event planner or coordinator? 
What are the the uh, the, the different stressors? And you know, you know, I did some research before that to see what what kind of things would come up, so that when I gave them those sixteen categories, um, I will have uh, a good list coming out of it. So the lowest one was risk to life. That was only two out of five on on a scale of five. That ranked two. Travel amount, 2.5. Perform, uh, performer not showing up, 2.6, which is kind of funny because when you'll see number one, you'll see that it's it's kind of the same uh, thing. Uh, physical job demands in public eye and so on. And then, you know, we're starting to go up and up. Uh, uh, my own performance was ranked at uh, 3.4. Weather strikes, acts of God, 3.6. By the way, the minimum was zero. Technical issues, 3.8. Lack of information, 3.8. And number one with 4.3. So, you know, if you looked at the chart, and I'm looking at the chart that, that I created as a result, the bar chart that I created, you can see that number one, the biggest delta is from number one to number two. And that's a 0.5 on a scale of five. The second biggest was between growth potential and being in the public eye. That was a 0.3. So the biggest gap was between the top one and the second one. And the top one was the dependency on other people. And, you know, even though uh, performer not showing up came up as one of them, uh, one of the others, the dependency on other people is a dependency on the speaker. So as professional speakers... We have to keep in mind that being an event planner is stressful and our performance, our ability to deliver what we're supposed to or exceed what we're supposed to deliver is one of the biggest concerns that they have. I still can't believe that this is actually the first time that I apply my models and, and processes to my own job, to, to what I do. But uh, something that you need to know is I, when I record these episodes, I don't just make up uh, stuff or, uh, you know, I, I just speak uh, and I don't know where it's going to end. Uh, what I do is I start building an outline about a week before I record the, uh, the episode and I reach out to people to get their insights. And so in this case, I reached out to meeting planners, uh, event planners, as well as other speakers, uh, you know, asking uh, event planners, uh, what is it that makes you trust a professional speaker that you bring to your events? And I asked professional speakers, what is it that you do to be trusted? And, you know, I start categorizing, I, I develop the outline, I, I make it more comprehensive. I, the, the outline kind of has several layers and, and so on. And that's when I start recording. Okay, uh, enough with that. So I, I want to start with what is trust. Okay. And uh, you heard the phrase, uh, no risk, no reward, right? So we're willing as people, not, not just event planners, but as people, we're willing to take risk if there is a reward, right? And the bigger the reward, typically the bigger the risk. I mean, if if you could get a bigger reward with not having a higher risk, then why won't you? Everybody will. The problem is that typically the bigger rewards do warrant a bigger risk. So you have to take the risk. The, the problem is, uh, if you think about it, there's two lines starting from zero, zero reward, zero risk, and starting to grow and grow and grow. So the reward goes up and the risk, uh, well, actually, the risk really goes up as well. But at some point, the risk crosses a line that is our risk tolerance. And different people have different risk tolerances. You know, risk takers typically have a, a higher risk tolerance. They, they can take a higher level of risk. Uh, risk averse people typically have a lower risk tolerance. Uh, and, and so their line is much lower. And the problem is when we cross that line, when the level of reward re requires a level of risk, assuming a, several, a certain level of risk, that crosses our risk tolerance threshold. Because the moment we cross that risk tolerance threshold is when we feel danger. As long as we're below it, we feel safe. The more below it we are, the safer we feel. So now the question is, how can we mitigate it? How can we take Expect a bigger reward, strive for a bigger reward, willing, be willing to take a higher risk 
that is above the our least tolerance threshold? And the answer is through trusting. And, and in this specific case, I'm going to talk about trusting someone else. So when you trust someone else, you just trust that they will reduce that level of risk. And you don't necessarily know how they're going to do it. You just trust them that they will. Now, th this, is, this cannot be a blind trust. That, and I'm going to talk about the model in, in this episode. It's not... What's important is that they will reduce the risk and I'll show you what they can do or what you can do as a professional speaker to reduce the risk for an event planner. Now, what's the reward? The reward is, uh, you know, <laughs> if the event goes well, and I, I know that I'm kind of focusing on the speaker, but, but as professional speakers, we have to remember that the overall event is not just you speaking, not just you delivering the keynote event, you know, the, 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 the keynote uh, speech. There are other things that happen in that event. The keynote speech, specifically the opening and then the closing keynote, have a big impact on the success. The opening keynote will set the tone, will set the mood to the rest of the event. I mean, think about that. As an attendee, you attend an event, a conference, the keynote speaker bombs. You already have a low perception of this event, and this these are the lens through which you're going to look at the rest of the event. So you're already looking at the event as, as a failing event, and, and so everything that you're going to see due to our own confirmation bias is just going to confirm that you think this is going to be a failing event. The closing keynote helps the participants remember what they, they saw. The, the, it gives the lasting impression, the last lasting impression of the event overall. So that's the importance of, of these two. So would you want to be the event planner that had a really good event. Event for 5,000 people where people talk about that event for months. Yeah, of course you want to be that, that event planner. So that's the reward. The risk is obviously you can't just take a plain vanilla speaker and expect them to make this an amazing event. You have to take someone, you have to take risk on someone, and, and maybe it's the amount of money that you're going to have to spend. Uh, maybe it's the uh, controversial nature of the topic or, or whatever. You're going to take risk, but now you need to trust the, the speaker to reduce that risk to a level that you can tolerate, to, to below your risk tolerance, because you do have a set risk tolerance. So now I'm going to turn to you, the speaker, the professional speaker, and I'm going to ask the question, how can you reduce that risk for the event planner? Before I go to talk about the model, I, I want to bring up one of the eight laws of trust, and that's trust law number five. Trust is transferable. If you trust me and I trust somebody else and I tell you that I trust that other person, uh, you will trust them, not maybe to the extent that I trust them or that you trust me, but more than not trusting them at all. So trust is transferable, which means that an event planner will trust you more if somebody told somebody they trust told them that they, they trust you and, and that the event planner should trust you. How do you do that? Get reviews. Just ask for reviews. Ask for testimonials. Now, I'm going to talk about time and intimacy. Uh, video testimonials are better than written testimonials. Because, you know, as an event planner, you can see the faces, the body language, the tone of voice of the person giving you a testimonial. You know, it's one thing to read the paragraph that says... Um, that event, uh, the speaker was an amazing speaker. I mean, think about the person giving that testimonial and think about the difference when you actually see and hear them say it. If they say, 
The speaker was very amazing, and we enjoyed the, the talk very much. It was very good. Versus, this speaker was amazing. <laughs> you know, somebody gave me a testimonial after um, one of my talks that I just, I, I put it in my promo, my intro video at the end. He just said something that if you looked at his face, you heard his tone of voice, it almost doesn't matter the words that he used. And, and the words that he used, if I only put the words, the words were, um, you should, what was it? You should listen to this guy. Oh, you got to see, you got to see this guy. And, and, you know, if you read the words, you got to see this guy. It's one thing. But when you hear him and see him say this, he goes, you got to see this guy. It's just, that's a different level of testimonial. And, and when an event planner looks at this, he goes, well, for somebody to say it like this, um, th this was a good speaker. This had to have been a good speaker. Names of companies, mention companies that you spoke for. And you know what? Preferably ask for, for, for references, ask for people's willingness to give references. And, and you know, I typically, I don't know, maybe it's an overkill, but I typically give more references than, than uh, meeting planners ask for. They ask for two references, give them five. Um, speakers bureaus that worked with you. Uh, again, you know, especially if this is an event planner that worked with this speakers bureau. If they can recommend you. Now, people talk. So you have to be careful. If you are doing something that caused an event planner not to trust you, others will know. So a good part is of, of the transferable trust is that you got to stay a trusted speaker. One time that you're not a trusted speaker, they're going to know. They're going to know because people talk. And guess what? Because bad is much stronger than good, people talk more about the bad things that you do than the good things that you do. The, the other thing is, if they had good experience with previous speakers in their event, use those speakers to recommend you. I mean, if those speakers really know you. One of the worst things you can do is ask people who don't know you to recommend you because that... I think this would be a worse recommendation than somebody than not asking for their recommendation at all. For somebody to go in and say, hey, uh, you know, uh, Yoram asked me to tell you that he's a good speaker. I mean, that's obviously terrible. Uh, I would I would ask, you know, when, when I'm being asked or invited to speak or invited to be considered to speak in an event, I looked at previous speakers. When I find someone who really does know me and really does know how I perform on stage, I ask them to be the, the reference to, for them to go and talk to the event planner and say, hey, you remember how you had me two years ago? Uh, I know that you're considering Yoram and, and he's really great. But because again, it's, it's easier to buy that from somebody they already know and trust and who knows and trusts you than from anybody else. Now I'm, I'm going to go into the relative trust model itself, and I'll start with uh, the three components of uh, who you are. So what do they know about you before they ever hire you, uh, before you perform? Let's, let's say before you perform. So first, there is the component of competence. That's the, the professional, technical, uh, more objective component. And it starts with the social proof. What do other people say about you? the videos that you have, your own videos. Uh, and, and it's good to give them samples uh, so for them to get a sense of what this looks like. Now, I I always worry that I'm going to give them a sample. And because of that, you know, because I'm doing one of the exercises, now they're going to know how it's going and, and they know what the answer is. But that's fine. The, the audience doesn't. It's just the, the event planner that, that would know this little thing that you're going to do that they're going to know how it ends. That's fine. It's not for the event planner. It's not for the event participants. It's just for the event planner. So whatever you can do to give them demonstrations of how competent you are and what should they expect is good. The, the, the second part of competence to me is confidence. 
your confidence in dealing with them. You know, I've heard too many speakers telling me that they would not even go on the plane unless the second half of their uh, speaker fees was paid. And I get and I, I do the same thing. I ask, typically, I ask for 50% upfront because, you know, I'm, I'm locking a date. And when I lock that date and all of a sudden somebody cancels, cancels on me a week before the event or even a month or, or sometimes even three months, the probability that I get something else there is zero. And then imagine this. Imagine that an event planner booked you and then somebody else was trying to book the same date or, or the next day or the day before in a way that travel just doesn't work. And you say no, and then the first one cancels, and now the, the other one already has someone else. Well, that is a problem. But it's one thing to ask for the first half, and it's a second thing to ask for the second half before you ever go on a plane. To me, I am confident in what they're going to get from me. I'm confident that at the end, they're going to feel that they got more value than what they paid. And that confidence, you know, again, I, whenever the word confidence comes to mind, I always remember the movie Zero Dark Thirty when the Navy SEAL teams, they, they're uh, huddling, they're, they're playing in, in this uh, Area 51 uh, part uh, place and uh, one of the Navy SEALs asked the other, uh, do you really believe her? Her being Maya, the, the um, CIA agent that, that found the location of Osama bin Laden. So he says, do you really believe her that, that the person we're after is Osama, that she knows where Osama bin Laden is? And the second one says, yeah. And the first one says, really? So well, what convinced you? And he points to her, the second seal, points to her with both arms and says, her confidence. Confidence instills trust. You know, it's, it's part of confidence, but confidence instills trust. As long as your confidence is substantiated, it's not overconfidence. Part of what I do to show the confidence, and the confidence is not, I'm confident in getting on stage. That's not the confidence. The confidence is I'm confident that when your event is over, when my part of the event was over, you're going to feel that you got more value that you'd pay for. I'm going to exceed your expectations. I'm confident with that. And one of my ways to show that confidence is that I always ask for the second half after the event is over. I mean, they're bound by an agreement, which, you know, every agreement can be breached, every agreement you can get out of. But it's that confidence that that I tell them the second half is after the event is over. The day go, he knows something that we don't. He knows this is going to be a good event. And to me, that's important. That's an important part of building trust. I mean, wouldn't you as an event planner be worried if the... Uh, the speaker made sure that you paid 100% before they ever got on plane. And as much as you know about them, as much testimonials that you saw, as much as many samples as you've seen, you haven't seen them speaking in your event to your audience. But you already pay them and it's completely non-refundable. How would you feel on the other hand about a professional speaker that says, don't worry, second half is after the event. I have to tell you, and I know there are going to be a lot of professional speakers that are going to hate me for saying that. There are times when I charge everything after the event. Of course, I have my own system to know that I can trust them for, hap for that happening. But sometimes, you know, especially w whenever I speak to a government entity or, you know, anyone in the defense industry, their processes are so hard they know that they're not going to be able to pay me maybe even the down payment before the event. I just, I know that they will. I know that I'm going to deliver. I know that I'm going, I know that I'm going to exceed their expectations. 
So why not? Why not make it easy for them and show them confidence, which is part of competence? I combined two components together in one component from the who you are, personality compatibility, and the other from what you do. It's actually a subcomponent of empathy because really they, they, they relate. And they start with the fact that that people are different. Not all event planners are the same. Not all people are the same. The same behavior that would cause one person to trust you could cause another person to distrust you. So it really starts, both personality compatibility and empathy really start with your ability to see to see things from the event planner's perspective as if you were them. First of all, it's your recognition, your acknowledgement that this event planner is not the other event planner for whom you spoke three days ago. It's a completely different person with completely different personality, with completely different care abouts, and you have to accept that. You know, one of the things that I do is, by the way, I research the event planners myself. It's not enough that somebody reached out to me out of the blue. I want to see who they are. Even before the first meeting that we have, the first call that we have, which, by the way, is why I always prefer to speak in person. But I'll get back to it uh, later. Strong personality compatibility, strong empathy means that you're going to make it easy to work with you. One of the things, and, and I can tell, I know that the event planner is stressed. I know they're stressed. And one thing that I keep saying it, and, and it's not just saying it, it's also how you say it. And this is where I'm going to go back when I talk about time and intimacy. It's, I tell them, I can promise you that I'm going to be the last thing you have to worry about. Worry about other things. By the way, I I try to help them in the event. You know, I'm there. I'm, I'm going to be there at, at the event. So many times I, I did the keynote and while they're at the event, they asked, ooh, we had a, a facilitator for a panel that we're going to have that bailed out or, or, or did not show. We don't know where they are. Make it, you know, I just said, Fine, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll be your, your facilitator. I know how to facilitate. I know how to run panels and, and all. I'll do it. Anything else you need help with? You know, I, I just uh, a couple of months ago, I did my third TED Talk. And when I did that, I, <laughs> I helped them set up the, the signs and everything. I helped them take it off. At the end, you know, when everybody else left, I just stayed there and, and helped them. You know what? It's already done. And, and it's not like anybody paid me to speak at a TED Talk. But people remember that. And remember how I told you, trust is transferable and people talk. I want people to tell others he really cared about what I had to do. He was very helpful. He went far and above, far and beyond uh, what he had to do. Now, another thing is um, I never take the last flight. I, I, I did that a few months ago. I, I took not, not the last flight. The only flight I could take to get to, uh, I think it was, I, I don't remember where it was, but um, it, it just that I had an event the night before and I had an event in a different state uh, the early afternoon of the day after. There was no way to take a flight the night before. I couldn't drive uh, all night because I wouldn't have made it. And the, I had to take the first flight in the morning and it scared the heck out of me. I, I don't like doing it. And, and this was the only time where I told the customer, I, I can't, I, I can't do this event because I cannot rely on one flight. And... The only way they convinced me to come and do it was uh, they said, we're going to take full responsibility if you miss that flight. So I did that and I hated it because I don't want to be on the last flight. I want to make sure that there, there are plenty of flights after that because flights get canceled, weather comes in and whatever. You, you need to make sure. 
And you also need to keep in mind that the event planner is worried. The event planner is worried because they know that they rely on, that you and I, they and I uh, rely on airplanes and, and airlines and weather for me to be there. I typically, whenever I land, as soon as the wheels touch the ground, you can turn on your phone or get it out of air, airplane mode. I, I would text my wife, not when I go to an event. When I go to an event, the first thing I do is I text the uh, event planner. Just landed. You're going to see me tomorrow. This alleviates some of their stress. And, and that's the most important part alleviate their stress personality compatibility and empathy see things from their perspectives ask yourself if you were them what would you worry about what can you do to help them worry about or stress about it less when i started uh, creating the outline for this episode um the component of symmetry and fairness, I was going to say, well, it doesn't really apply here. But then I found several reasons why it does. So the first one is, uh, and, and it kind of falls under symmetry and fairness, uh, although I'm, I'm sure we can put it somewhere else as well. The relationship between the price you're charging and the value you're delivering. I see so many speakers that just go, well, I should charge this amount, I should charge that amount, because this is what uh, others are charging and so on, completely disregarding the value that you're bringing. When I teach my entrepreneurship class uh, at SMU, I, I ask the question, if it costs you $100 to make, let's say that you're making a product or delivering a service or whatever, and it costs you $100 to make one, all costs included, $100 to make one. How much should you charge for it? And people immediately go to uh, 200. I don't know why it's like 50% gross margin is the magical number. $200, 110, more than 100, 1,000. They throw in all kinds of numbers. But you know what? More and more recently, I've seen students that actually come back with the right answer. And the right answer is as much as they're willing to pay, as much as they're putting value on it. Because there is a strong relationship between value and price, the price you're willing to pay. So, you know, I was recently uh, raising my, my prices and I was raising my prices, but I didn't just raise my prices uh, for no reason. I decided to look at my keynote and raise the value that they get from it. And, and you raise the value through different things. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go deep into my model of what I think uh, warrants your, your prices, but, but it's really three things. It's being a celebrity, it's being an expert, and being an entertainer. So, you know, being a celebrity, there's nothing I can do about that one. That's over time, you know, certain industries started to know me more, and um, but that's as far as it goes. Um, being more entertaining, so I added components of entertainment into to my keynote, being more of an expert, especially in their specific industry, which is important, so do some research, increases the value, and when it increases the value, only then I can increase the price. The second part of symmetry and fairness, mostly fairness, is that your pricing structure is fair and, and equal. You know, you charge the same price. I charge the same price. Sometimes I give discounts. I should say that. I sometimes give discount. And one of the main reasons is, you know, there are industries such as education that can't afford what a sales conference can afford or, or maybe another conference can afford. And if they can't afford this, should you just not deliver there? Should you price it differently? And I don't price it differently. I price it the same way, but I give them a discount for very specific reasons. And one of the reasons for that is imagine if, you know, I'm, I'm just going to throw numbers. Imagine if my keynote was $100,000, but the education industry can only pay 50000 
then if I invoice one event at 100,000 and another event for the same keynote, 50,000, remember what I said at the beginning when I talked about trust is transferable, people talk. Somebody is going to get their hands on a $50,000 invoice and say, wait a minute, why do you charge them 50,000? So even when I discount, my invoice will always start at 100,000 discounted because of, and there are different reasons to discount, you know, the specific industry to me, it's education, education and veterans, I would say. The second is the, the location, you know, the fact that I don't have the travel. Yes, I do charge travel uh, separately, but uh, it's one thing when, you know, a keynote means three days. You know, a keynote in Hawaii would probably mean at least three days out of the office, at least. A keynote in Dallas would mean... Uh, and 30 minutes before, 30 minutes after. Well, it's more than 30 minutes before because uh, you know that I'm always going to be the first person there that goes back to uh, personality compatibility and empathy. So I'm going to be the first person there, even when it's local. Another reason for discount is you book me within less than a month. And what that means is that the probability of another event happening that date is so low that I'm willing to give you a discount. So there are valid reasons. And if somebody puts their hands on an invoice that says $50,000, when I'm charging them $100,000, they're going to say, how come you're charging them $50,000? I'm going to say, show me the invoice. The invoice shows $100,000. Here are the reasons for the discounts. Do you qualify for any of them? Because if you do, I will give you that, uh, that same one. Fairness is really important. That symmetry is very important. So keep that. And, and it goes back into that uh, second half after. So if I ask them, second half of the payment after, if I ask them to pay everything up front, the relationship is not very symmetrical. You know, they paid 100% and they're still to see, I'm, I'm still to show up on stage. But if they only pay half, then I deliver the full keynote. Then they pay half. We somehow build some symmetry into it. And, and they feel they can trust me more. Okay, now we're coming to the second component, subcomponent of the positivity component. That's no BS. And I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting on a soapbox. One of the things that annoys me the most is this whole concept of best-selling author, people referring to themselves as best-selling author. Because if you check the dictionary, what a best-selling author or best-selling book means, it means that it sells a lot. Now, what's a lot? We can argue over that. Is 10,000 books a, a day a lot? I'm going to say yes. Is 10,000 books a month a lot? I'm still going to say yes. Is 10,000 books a year a lot? Hmm, not sure. Now, th there is no line that, that says you can use the, the phrase best-selling author above this line. And there are tricks. I'm, I'm sorry to say that. There are tricks to become a best-selling author, a New York Times uh, best-selling author or, or any other. Because, you know, once you understand the system, once you understand how they're considering you, uh, you go, oh, then here is a way to get there. To me, a best-selling author or a best-selling book is a book that people who don't know you heard about it, got it, and really liked it. So they told other people because that's the best way to sell a lot of books. Unfortunately, Amazon decided that for them, if for one hour or one day, you ranked, you sold more books than this, the current first book in a specific category, you become a best-selling author. They're going to give you that uh, little orange uh, label that says best-selling author or uh, best new release or whatever, uh, and, and you're going to use it. And immediately, as soon as that came out, people realized that this is how we can game the system. So how can we game the system? Well, first of all, you want to be a best-selling author of a paid book as opposed to a free book. So 
But your book costs $14.99, so what you're going to do is you're going to take a Kindle version of that book, reduce the price from $14.99, whatever the price is, to $0.99, cents, which is the minimum that uh, they will allow you to charge. You will categorize the book in a very obscure category that, by the way, has absolutely nothing to do with your with the topic of your book. And I found some, you know, weird la- categories in the language. Uh, and, and there are others where the top book, n- now you go to how well does this book rank on the Amazon sales? I mean, it's it's like how many of those are being sold? And, and there are categories where the number one book in that category ranks like number 400,000. Then you go to a, an Amazon sales category uh, calculator, an Amazon sales calculator, and that Amazon sales calculator will tell you if this book ranks 400,000, that means that they're selling three books a month. So let me ask you. You got your friends, so you took your book, you categorized it in a category that has absolutely nothing to do with the topic of your book, and then you reduced the price to 99 cents, which is the minimum that they would allow you to. You called 10 or 20 or 100 of your closest friends, and by the way, in some of those categories, uh, it's enough to buy four books to become uh, the best-selling author in that category. So... Now you're a best-selling author in that category. You know, by the way, uh, as it turns out, uh, it becomes a best-selling author in Latvia, which makes you an international best-selling author, even better than just a best-selling author. And um, now you're going to call yourself a best-selling author. I can't tell you how many times I have this argument. This is, I'm, I'm passionate about this argument. There was a time where in my LinkedIn tagline, I actually wrote, not a best-selling author. Okay? I sold thousands of copies of my books. This does not make me a best-selling author. And I know that there are going to be people who passionately disagree with you. And you know what? If you passionately disagree with me, good for you. By the way, you should know that the National Speakers Association Code of Ethics, number one rule in the Code of Ethics, is that you do not misrepresent yourself. And to me, this is a misrepresentation. You're using uh, Amazon to to tell you that you're a best-selling author, even though it doesn't really meet the dictionary definition of it. (laughs) Had something else happen recently. I saw somebody that was giving a talk about how to deliver millions of views to your TED Talks. And when I checked, I found that that person had two TED Talks given four and five years ago. One of them had 72,000 views. The other had 75,000 views. Not that I sneaker at 75,000 views or 72,000 views, but combined those two TED Talks that have been around for four and five years respectively don't even reach 150,000 views. Doesn't stop that person from telling me, teaching me how to get millions of views. By the way, my three TED Talks don't even have 72,000. I don't think so. That's okay. I'm not trying to tell people that I'm going to teach them how to sell million, how to get millions of views. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that at least I consider it unethical. And, And I think that pretty much everybody I'm going to ask is going to say, that's unethical. That's that's a misrepresentation. If you got your speaking gig by doing that, by telling the, the event planner, I'm a best-selling author and the event planner, and that played a role in hiring you, and they never bothered to check, well, then you slipped one. Imagine what would happen if you apply... You apply as a best-selling author. They go and they check the Amazon ranking of your book to find that it ranks 1.2 million. 
They go to the calculator to find that to reach a 1.2 million ranking, that means that you're selling not more than three books a year. What do they think about you now? Was it worth it? I mean, this information is available. Checking your books and seeing how they rank on Amazon? Don't go there. Okay, enough with my pet peeves. One more item to go. The, the interaction with the speaker, or, or yeah, the, the, the interaction with the speaker is mainly a transaction. It's not an ongoing, long-time relationship that ends with them one day decide, deciding that they trust you enough to hire you to be their speaker. So it's mostly, it focuses on the what you do during an interaction group of components. And, and those start with the positivity, which is made of empathy and no BS, but it's accelerated by time and intimacy. This is why when I talked about transferable trust and I talked about testimonials, I said it's better to have video testimonials because there's so much more, assuming those are good video testimonials, assuming you, you don't capture somebody at the end of your event and say, how was the event? And they go, eh, it was kind of okay. And you put that as your testimonial. That's not something you want to brag about. But when somebody goes... <laughs> like the guy that I have on my intro video who said, uh, you gotta you gotta see this guy. I mean, just the way he says it, it it's like it's contagious. I mean, uh, how can somebody not hire me after that? So get video testimonials that that's intimacy. That's more than the written word. more it's the tone of voice and it's the body language. It's the nonverbal communications. But, but this applies also to your communication with the event planner. As quickly as possible, get off email and into a video conference. You know, typically it, they're not local. And even if they are local, uh, you know, you can turn a 30-minute call in, into video call into a three-hour, I drive there, I wait for you, we meet, uh, we talk, I go back. Uh, plus, it might even be a little too intimidating for you to share the same space with them. But video call, Zoom, you know, Microsoft Meet, Google, um, uh, Google Meet, Microsoft Teams, and or any other uh, heck, you know, you can do video calls through Facebook, through LinkedIn. That's WhatsApp. Uh, they're un or just you know, what does Apple have? Uh, I have, to, I have to unlock my phone to see what's a FaceTime. Of course, FaceTime. So there are plenty of ways to do a video call. Uh, do a video call. Let them see you. Um, it will accelerate the trust. Or maybe uh, actually, uh, you know, do the opposite, which is good to know. But uh, let them meet you. Meet you in videos. Let them hear you. Let them see your body language. Say what you mean, mean what you say. It, it's going to have a big impact. Your tone of voice, your body language will have a big impact. Now, th this is the intimacy part, but the time part is the more they interact with you, the more frequently they interact with you, the longer they interact with you, um, the more they're going to build that trust. I mean, I can't tell you how many times somebody is reaching out to me to sell me something, and it's like the first time I just ignore uh, spam. Second time, ignore. Third time, fifth time, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to listen to this person. That's that's the effect of time. So make sure that, that you keep in touch with them uh, before they make the decision, after they make the decision. I, I communicate with them after they make the decision as well. By the way, one more very important part that, that I didn't talk about is when I talked about value, deliver more value than they expect. So, uh, you know, several of the events that I just booked, we never got to talk about, I can record a promo video for you. After they booked me, after they signed the contract, after they paid the 50% uh, upfront to secure the date, I said, oh, by the way, I can record a promo video for you to share with your participants. Don't worry. 
No extra charge. I do that for all of my customers who want it. You deliver more value to them that they did not expect. And, you know, when I teach entrepreneurships, one of entrepreneurship, one of the things that, that I tell my students is that delivering more value, more perceived value than the perceived price that you have to pay is what makes you make the buying decision. Finding out that the real value is higher than the perceived value and that, you know, all those little things that you add later add up to your actual value that you deliver is higher than what they perceive, what they expected. That makes customers come back. That makes customers give you good references. But you know what? I I talked about keeping touch with them even when they uh, keep in touch with them before and uh, uh, even after they made the hiring decision. But I want to extend this. Keep in touch with them even if they didn't hire you. If they said, you know, we decided that we want a speaker about a different topic, you know what I asked them? I get this. I understand this. Tell me what topic you're after and maybe I can recommend a few speakers that I know personally. (laughs) Most of them don't expect you to do that. Um, And stay in touch with them. How did the event go? Did it go? I know that Elizabeth did a great job because I know her. I know you hired her and, and I know that she did a great job. How was it? Are people excited and so on? You keep on building the trust they have in you. I had people that I've been in touch with for years, event planners, I've been in touch with for years, didn't hire me, didn't hire me, didn't hire me, didn't hire me. All of a sudden they hired me. Just keep in touch. I hope this was helpful, especially if you're a professional speaker or considering a career in professional speaker. Be trusted. It's really important to the event planner that they can trust you. I gave you the the tools. I hope you're going to use them. May trust be with you. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.